On Country Radio right now, there is a theologically terrible song. I hope to save time to talk about it, but we have to start with the tragedy in Buffalo and how it relates to rhetoric and violence on this week's Corey Truax Show. It seems the culture at large, and especially the American media, is applying a standard regarding the relationship between language and the instigation to violence, but they are applying the standard unevenly, and I want to push and prod on why that might be, and then ask the question, what is the relationship between the rhetoric we use and the secondary effects on other people? We'll do that on this week's Corey Truax Show. Luckily... That's actually my name. I'm your host, amongst many other things. I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. You are invited to Beachwood Church any given Sunday morning. This particular Sunday, I'll be gone. I'll be at Cornerstone Church up in Waynesville, North Carolina. I've been graciously invited to preach up there. Looking forward to spending some time with those folks serendipitously or maybe sovereignly. They are also going through the Gospel of Mark. And so I get to go back and use some of the study I did uh, on the calming of the storm and that sermon up there. So it's going to be a good time. If you're up in Western North Carolina, you can email me, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I can get you the details. Love to see you out there at Cornerstone. I want to do two preambles before we get into the question of the relationship between rhetoric and behavior. How the words, leaders, media, people put out in the world, and us, the tenor of culture that we put out into the world, how it might affect others' behavior. Here are those two preambles. One, I don't ever want to run past the reality that there's real sadness about what happened in Buffalo, and deservedly so. I mean, a guy actually straight said, I, on purpose, went to find black people to kill. I wanted to do that. I have to imagine... My black listeners, you, all of our black friends, it has to do something. It has to cause some kind of consternation, and I, I hope it's not fear. Because I know this, when I heard on the same weekend that some Presbyterians were killed in Southern California, some, I believe they were, uh, I can't remember, Korean maybe, and it was a Chinese guy, so it was both ethnic and religious. I feel that. When I hear about Christians being persecuted across the world. It often causes an, an emotional reaction in me because I see that's my brethren. Those are my sisters, and they're, in, they're suffering for something that I hold to, a belief that I have. And so it affects me in an emotional way when I see people target my people. And for those that feel a camaraderie regarding ethnicity, this has to be hard. And I don't want to run past that. I want to sit in it. Recognize it, say it out loud, and then call us all to be people that are quick to listen, slow to speak, deeply prayerful for those that hurt. Let's start there. That's one preamble. Second preamble. I know some of you just generally enjoy my energy or how I present things. Some of you say that. Actually, quite a few of you say that from time to time when we interact. But that's not, I hope, the reason you come here week after week. I hope you come because I do my best, I fail often, but I do my best to root what I'm saying 
in my understanding of Scripture, my understanding of the Bible. And so, while, I, you probably already know, while I, I'm going to land in a spot that says everyone is responsible for themselves, S- someone's rhetoric cannot be, cannot be fully responsible for what someone else does, I also want to acknowledge by rooting in Scripture that the Bible has a lot to say about the power of our words. Proverbs says something to the effect of, the power of life and death is in the tongue. One of the main themes of Proverbs is the power of our words. How, how kind words are like sweet honey in criticizing biting words or bitter to the taste. There's real power in the things we say. James talks about the tongue like it's a rudder that can turn a giant ship. It's a little fire that can really burn, burn a whole structure down. And Jesus even tells us, there's accountability coming for your words. For every idle word, there is coming a time where you'll be judged for the things you said. Now, also rooting in Scripture, though, I don't find the place where I am responsible for how someone else responds to my words. There's a little bit of wiggle room here in that the Apostle Paul will talk about false teachers. I think this is in Romans. Oh, I can't get there. 10, 11, something like that. Talking about false teachers and says they de- uh, they're deceiving the hearts of the naive. So there's a category of manipulation where someone with a great deal of influence and power uses their words to on purpose manipulate people into believing or doing the wrong thing. And there's accountability for that person. Uh, They're accountable for how their words cause someone else to behave because their their intent was to manipulate them into action. But beyond that, you can challenge me on this, I can't find biblically where my language and the things I say, where I will be held accountable for how someone heard it and then went and did something with it. Unless I said to them, go hurt somebody. Go spread this rumor. Go embezzle, steal, cheat, something like that. And that's what we've been debating in the public space since the Buffalo shooting. How much is media responsible for this 18-year-old's actions? How much are TV personalities, should they be culpable for the ideology and the theories this guy ran into? Who should, how, how much responsibility is there? And I want, to exp- I want to explore that. I just know this. Whatever the relationship is between rhetoric and the behavior of other people, whatever standard that is, it needs to be consistent. And what I have found is the standard being held by the dominant culture, which is primarily secular, progressive, and left of center. So non-Christian, progressive, meaning, uh, well, left and center and progressive are not synonymous, but they're related. That's our dominant milieu in the culture. I am finding they don't apply their standard consistently. I know, in part, there's just a partisan desire to link this killer to particular ideas or personalities. There's just a desire to say, conservatism, or anything to the right of center, it must be evil. Because folks on the secular progressive left know, you guys are the bad guys. 
And so if someone does something bad, they must be on your side, and they would want nothing more than to associate a mass killing with ideas they don't like. And so I want to do this for two reasons. I do want to decide what is the relationship between rhetoric and behavior of other people. But two, I also want to clarify your thinking. If you struggle with that or someone around you struggling with that, I want you to be prepared. I'm about to give you a lot of argumentation. And in this context, I don't want to say ammunition. I want to give you a lot of stock, a lot of supply of information and argumentation to demonstrate violence is not, that the violence there in Buffalo is not related to rightism, to right of centerism, or no one's really alleging Christianity that's associated with Christianity, unless you're also going to, unless you're going to call these other things I'm about to uh, explain to you, unless you're going to call these things the problem of the left, you can't call this one a problem of the right. So let's do those together. Do you remember the names James James Hodgkinson? I bet you don't, and it's not because you're uninformed or misinformed. It's because we let that go by pretty quickly. A 67-year-old man named James Hodgkinson in 2017 went to a baseball field right outside Washington, D.C., where after writing a manifesto where he talked about how much he loved Rachel Maddow's show and how he was a Bernie Sanders supporter and he was hearing from Bernie Sanders and other types of those types of people, that Republicans wanted to take health care from people, and so Republicans were killing people. A witness to what he did next testifies that James Hodgkinson said to this random person, the people practicing baseball on that field, are they Republicans? And when he found out they were, he opened fire on them. Shot Congressman Steve Scalise in the hip, and if it were not for his own ineptitude with a firearm, could have killed one-fifth of an, of an entire Congress. Or, sorry, that's one-tenth. One-tenth of an entire Congress. He was obsessed with Maddow and MSNBC and about the, the GOP being the next coming of the KKK. Are we to blame Maddow? Are we to blame the media that he consumed for his crime? There's an entire category here related to race, unfortunately. I wonder if you remember the name of Micah Xavier Johnson. You probably don't. Because, again, it doesn't fit a narrative, and so it didn't stay in the media long. In the summer of 2016, after a lot of heated rhetoric about how cops treat unarmed black men, there was a a rally there in Dallas... I believe it was a Black Lives Matter rally, and cops were there to keep the peace. And Micah Xavier Johnson, with his military background, used his sniper skills to kill five, kill five officers. And when we look at his online background, and we look at the things that he tweeted and he said, and what he consumed, he just found, well, I'm being told these men hunt me. They go out every day and look for me to kill They look for people like me to kill, and I'm going to kill them first. Are we to blame Michael, excuse me, Micah Xavier Johnson for what he did, or are we to blame the rhetoric that he consumed? Are we to blame Eugene Long for what he did? Eugene Long, point blank, killed three Baton Rouge police officers. He was a, a black man who consumed a lot of rhetoric, 
consumed a lot of media that said, these cops are out to kill you. They're hunting you. That was the message of media. That was a lot of message on the left. There's not a lot of nuance in police shootings. We just know they're hunting on purpose out there looking to kill black men. Does anyone even remember Daryl Brooks from back at Christmas time? Daryl Brooks also saying a lot of saying a lot of things that have to do with how he's he's discriminated against as a black man, ran his car through a Christmas parade, injured many, I think killed a few. Does anyone remember Frank James? It was like a month ago. Went to Brooklyn to a subway stop and shot up the place. We have videos of him saying something similar to this guy who uh, shot up Buffalo. Some stuff about the Jews and how they run run everything. Are we to blame him or not? Are we to blame Noah Green? Noah Green had a lot of media activity about how we have a totally white supremacist country bathed in discrimination, and he drove his car into a Capitol Police officer. Killed him. Are we to blame them for their actions, or are we to blame a culture, a social media culture, and a media environment that told them they were in danger and being hunted? I think you know where I stand. All those men are to blame. And equally, there has been violence that is more right-word associated. I just gave you I, I just gave you violence, one from the left. I don't know if I'd call those, I wouldn't call those racially motivated murders from the left. That's just a, a different motivation altogether. But every one of those, I would be consistent, and I would say they consumed a lot of media that poisoned their minds and drove them to violence. And they're, but they're responsible ultimately for what they did with the media they consumed. I want to apply that. I have to take a break. But when we come back, I want to apply that to this current spate of violence that we've seen and then give us some cautions for how we might prevent these things in the future. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I guess for three reasons. I originally said two. One, to explore the relationship between rhetoric and violence, to equip you for these conversations, and then also, I I think I'm also trying to dispel a myth. I read the New York Times daily every morning, and they recently had an article that just said, political violence is unique to the right. It doesn't happen on the left, and I just wanted to dispel that completely, because that is a fact check false. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show, wherever you listen to podcasts, and right here on His Radio Talk. Glad to have you with us. You can email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com, or find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find me there, and I hope you will. So, I give you a lot of examples of people who did violent things motivated by leftist media or leftist narratives And there seems to be no interest in applying the standard that what caused them to do it was the media they consumed. What caused them to do it was the stuff they found on the internet. However, that is fully what we are being 
is being suggested by the dominant culture, dominant media, about this killer in Buffalo that he found on 4chan and 8chan. I can't remember which one, or maybe it was both. These conspiracy theories, like replacement theory, that the Jews are trying to replace white people with people of color for some reason. And then you get uh, this manifesto. It's being cherry-picked so much, and it's, it is upsetting indeed. He, his manifesto, if you haven't seen it, is in question-and-answer form. Like, he asks, himself, he asks himself a question and then answers it. He says things like, uh, there's a question that says, are you a fascist? He says, yes, I'm a fascist. That's, it's one of the only political ideologies that will unite whites against the replacers. That's both evil and crazy. But that's what he calls himself, a fascist. He calls himself in the document a white supremacist, a racist. He calls himself a, an, anti, an anti-Semite. These are all the things he calls himself. But then he, he gets the question, are you a conservative? No, he says. Conservatism is corporatism in disguise. I want no part of it. And specifically says, uh, I'll find, let me find it before I start trying to quote. Found it. Uh, he he, he is asked, did you hold, did you always hold the views you hold? And he says, when I was 12, I was deep into communist ideology. Well, first, hold up. One of the cautions I wanted to give at the end, but I think I should do it now, is parents. We got to be careful about what's coming across our kids' screens. He's 18. He's been stewing on deep, philosophy of political political ideas, at least since he was 12. So much so that he says, in 12, I was into communist ideology. I don't know when the appropriate time is to provide a smartphone for your kid. I lean more and more. It's, it's at some point in high school, but I'm thinking later in high school. I know that in middle school, they all have iPhones now. I see some elementary schoolers with iPhones now. That feels so dangerous. You know, I, I think it's dangerous. I always have because it's too easy to get to porn even on accident. It's too easy to be exposed to or get connected to the wrong people who might do harm. But there are, now I'm finding, your 12-year-old can get, I don't know, into communism? That's not a watchful parent. If a student, if a young person at 12 can call themselves a communist, that's not a parent that's being watchful. But he says, uh, when I was 12, I was deep into communist ideology. From age 15 to 18, I moved farther to the right, but on the political compass, I'm a mild moderate, and I would prefer to be called a populist. He also has in the document, are you on the left? He says, yes, sort of. Are you on the right? Yes, sort of. On on the on that manifesto. I could continue on with some of the parts you're probably not seeing from more prominent voices. But th- that question then b- does become, is he responsible for his actions or are the people who put the ideas in his head about replacement theory, I suspect the shooter here in Charleston, I'm not using their names on purpose, the shooter here in Charleston in the... Uh, Mother Emanuel killings. He was somewhere along these same lines. He had this idea from the depths of the internet that white people were at some kind of risk, 
some kind of threat. And so he took action against eight elderly, sweet believers. So I give you both ends of political violence. And I stand here. Everyone's responsible for their own stuff. You are responsible for what you do. Now, that should give us some cautions, though. I'm, no one is responsible. None of the media this, this, kid, uh, uh, this kid consumed is responsible for what he did. I have some level of culpability. I don't mean legal culpability, but some level of culpability for his parents for being derelict in duty. Where are you? While your kid is being radicalized, where are you? You see no, you, you see no need to be particularly cautious with him? I see that way, way too much with some of these younger killers is there was a lot of reason for those around him, it's always guys, those around him to be very cautious, to make sure he doesn't have access to the method of killing a lot of people. So here's the cautions I want to give us. Number one is going back to that scriptural rooting and the power of our words. Let's be careful about how heated we get with our rhetoric. That's a theme of mine. I don't, I don't like at all, I think it's really damaging when folks on the right talk about how America is in peril. We're on a precipice. We're over the edge. And if one more left-winger wins an election, we're over the edge, we're dead. And equally, heck, this has been, the, the left's been doing this for a long time. They got a commercial of a Representative Paul Ryan going up on top of a hill and pushing an old person out of a, a wheelchair. If, if Paul Ryan wins, you know, you're, all the old people are going to die. He's going to push them over hills down, or out of wheelchairs down hills. When the, the cultural world, political world, civics, become our church, become God, things get very heated. And the language we use about consequences to political wins or losses becomes overwrought. So for your own kids... In your own workplaces, if it comes up, I hope it doesn't. I wish workplaces could be apolitical places. If ever you're having those discussions on the internet, just know this. What the culture needs is cooling. You know, I, I try to use biblical language on this to be salt and light. Neither one of those things is a cooling effect. But salt is a purifier and a preserver. Light makes things more clear. Let us be the people then in how we talk about the consequences of political and cultural things that we preserve calm, that we preserve a clear mindset, that we're, we're shedding light on the situation. I'm gonna, I am going to use myself as an example of this because I can't think of any others. The night before Joe Biden was inaugurated, I put out a blog that said, hey everybody, basically nothing's going to happen for two years. Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney kind of run the Senate because Romney will stick with Democrats on some stuff. Manchin's going to stick with Republicans on some stuff. They're not going to pack the court. They're not going to do away with the filibuster. There's not going to be uh, adding of Puerto Rico as a state. None of that's going to happen. The institutions will stand strong. And guess who was right? I was. And what was I doing? Hey, let me shed some light. Folks that are like me, you're being told by a lot of voices, be terrified. You are under threat. And I'm coming to say, hold on, hold on. There's, there's a lot of protection here. You're okay. Nothing good's going to happen. There's not going to be good things progressed, but you're not in danger. It's okay. And 
the same thing happened when, with Roe. Roe versus Wade is going to get, over. I pray to God, overturned. One of the first things I do is go write down some kind of resource that says, all right, but here's what that means, everybody. On the left, you guys are freaking out for no, no good reason. You don't even, the thing we actually want, which is to see abortion gone forever, that's not even going to happen. It's just going to go back to the states. The one-third of the country is going to live in states that have unfettered access. Another one-third of the country is going to live in states adjacent to those states. Two-thirds of the country have no problem whatsoever getting a, an abortion. I would add nobody will because there will be so many organizations putting together resources for tourism abortion. And so calm down. That's something I would call us to. Preserve calm, shed light, so as to not heat up the civic domain. So people are responsible for themselves. We should be careful about the language we use. Three, I'm going back to parents because I did actually have it as my third point, and I unfortunately jumped the gun. Same thing. Think deeply about when your kid gets an iPhone, and uh, I don't know if I should... Yeah, I'm going to say it. I think... I think I would not allow internet browsing for my kid without filters and also one of those accountability softwares that either on your phone or on your computer, emails get sent to me with their web history. I used to have that. I just stopped paying for it. There's a couple people in my life that just got sent my web history every week, I think it was, so that it was an accountability thing. I'm not ashamed of the things I'm looking at on the internet. Let's go uh, have some accountability for what we're doing there. You you parent your own kids. It's not my job, and I, I would never impose. Think deeply, though, about what your kids get exposed to, because this guy's just 18. He's been simmering in this world for years, and maybe no one even knew. So they're responsible. We are not. But we should be careful about our language. And parents, be particularly cautious about when your students, excuse me, your, your children get access to smartphones and the internet and how they do that. And then one last thought. We know this is true. We are in the midst of a horrific mental health crisis. I've talked about it a lot. I think it's primarily a spiritual health crisis because we are a deeply unspiritual people that have left all the fundamentals of the faith and by leaving those fundamentals of the faith, we, lo- we left the, the designer manual, the owner's manual. God made us. He knows what makes us happy and what makes us thrive. And when we, when we as a culture largely rejected God, we said, no, we will not do the things that we are designed for. We will do the things that we want, what our flesh draws us to. And so by no surprise, we're more depressed, higher anxiety than we've ever been. So you take that mental health crisis where we're in despair. We are sad, or uh, despair, sad, anxious, lonely, all of those. And then into that world of a bunch of people struggling with these things, we introduce insane rhetoric. We introduce rhetoric that says, this side over here, they're trying to kill you. They want you dead. We introduce rhetoric that says, if this side gets power, you will never be free. They will put you in bondage of some sort. When you introduce radical messaging, you put consequences of life and death or consequences of freedom and bondage into a world ripe with sickness, illness in the mind, you know what you're going to get more of? 
violence. As people feel threatened, they're only going to get more violent. So, that's that final call from me. Let's be people that are bringing down the temperature by not using radical language, especially for the Christian. We are the people of hope. That's how we think. That's how we talk. And that's the influence we have in the world around us. If you have a response to that, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Or find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My name is Corey Truax. It's easy to find me and message me there if you disagree or just want to add to it. When we return, I actually can't believe I'm going to do this, but I do now have a thought about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, I think her name is, trial, because of something else I saw on uh, TikTok, I think it was. And, well, I guess I saw it on Instagram Reels, because that, anyway, I'm an old guy and we don't TikTok, but everyone puts their TikToks over on Instagram, and anyway. All right, uh, so I want to talk about that, and then there's this terrible country song. Just It's heretical or blasphemous, one of the two. And I want to give you some response to that. We'll do that, and probably a little more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show, wherever you listen to podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. It has been years since I have exegeted the culture on the show. That's what I called it back then, because we're in year seven of the show, coming up on year number eight. And in the past, I would go through songs like All About That Bass from Megan Trainer. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I went through songs like Take Me to Church and Holy, 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 I think it was called, from was that terrible country band, Florida Georgia Line. And along those Holy, Holy, Holy lines... There is now another country song. This was shared with me by my bride-to-be. She texted me a link and said, this is not okay. And I greatly appreciated her discernment that, no, it is not okay. So, here you go. And also, by the way, I looked it up. This thing won Male Artist Video of the Year at the Country Music Television Awards, CMT Awards. These are supposed to be, you know, good old, good old folks that would know better than this. The artist's name is Kane Brown. Some of you will think I am picking at nits, or nitpicking. But this is, I think theological rigor is important. And this kind of song needs to be rejected. Here are some lyrics. I don't know what the rules are about playing songs, by the way. That's why I'm not playing the song, because I don't. I think there are rules, and I'm not allowed to play it. The lyrics are, Your kisses have a higher power. Your body, baby, it's divine. Every time I see you smile, it's like I've seen the light. That's fine. Okay. It's a little, uh, it's, it's a little spiritual language for the one you love. It's, it's okay. Sleeping next to you is heaven, but you already know that. I want to glorify every part of you so bad. Hmm. <laughs> Imprecise use of glorify. Maybe just, uh, may, maybe even magnify as in focus on. Focus on all the good parts of you. Okay. I think you can, thus far, while uncomfortable language, equating romantic love to worship. Some language is already there. It's a little uncomfortable, but we're not to the chorus yet. But here we go. Don't, and this is now the chorus, don't get me wrong. I'm a God-fearing man. Mm-hmm. But if you, were a, if you were a religion, then dang. So he, um, he rhymed man with an expletive. He says, but if you were religion, then dang, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, I might have to worship you. 
Oh, man. So, so this is unbelievably unhealthy. We don't worship our partners. This is very literally a song of idolatry. It's one of the ones I talk about often. You know, there's those four core idols that Tim Keller has taught. I can't remember who first came up with it. It wasn't him. That the four core idols that lead to all other sins are... Oh, no. Corey, come on. Is it control, power, uh, comfort, and approval? Ah, got him. Yes. Okay. So, um, one of the core idols being approval or comfort leads you to saying, the, the thing that makes me me is that I have this person's attention. And one of the things the human heart, human mind does is elevate the person we're with because it makes us feel better about us. I elevate this person in my mind to something that should even be worshipped and then consider what that means about me. Something that deserves to be worshipped wants me. How awesome am I? It's a really unhealthy place to to place our hope and our affections. Because consider this. Let's say this, this is the... Let's say this is a, a dating relationship, and there's a bunch of people out there in unmarried dating relationships hearing the song, and they relate that they feel this way about the person they're with. Hate to break it to you. You guys are probably going to break up soon. So that's how life works. And cons- consider what that does then to someone's mental state, their emotional state. You lost your God when you lost this person. Which is why, don't make them your God. Listen, older folks, my listenership is primarily people in their 20s and 30s. And I'm calling us the older folks. We have to instill this in our kids. I will not recall the whole story because it's very dumb and immature. But like my first teenage heartbreak was intense. I look back on it with some shame and embarrassment. But it was truly wreckage and in part it was wreckage emotionally and mentally because of what this song portrays the even if it wasn't the person it was the concept the concept of being being wanted being approved of that core idol and that that became that which what I that which I worshiped at 15 and 16 we got to protect our kids from this if you see them developing relationships that have this kind of intensity it is our job to intervene and let us break their heart instead of letting the situation break their heart. I don't understand. I could be wrong, and I can be argued with if you want to argue with me. I don't quite understand the parenting that says, let them go make a big emotional mistake and suffer the wreckage for it. They need to suffer the heartbreak because they're going to have to do it at some point. All right, well, may I suggest that the mid to early teen, the mid, well, any teenager, that's not the right time for it. As they're developing who they are, as hormones are raging, as they're quite unstable in an unstable world, maybe that's not the time to experience your first heartbreak when you don't really have the resources and ability to get through it. But those heartbreaks often come from sentiments expressed in this song that if you were a religion, I don't know what I do, I might have to worship you. He said he's a God-fearing man. I might have to turn my back on God to worship you instead because you're so worship-worthy. Back to the song, Kane Brown says, I might have to sing your praise. I might have to go to church 
every single night and day. Okay. Verse 2, here we go. Yeah, I might have to hit my knees because you lay it on me like the truth and you love me like hallelujah. That doesn't even make sense. I might have to worship you. Yeah, I might have to worship you. I might have to worship you. And then it's back to the chorus. This is getting Hillsong right. Like they, That could be a Hillsong song. It's so, uh, so nicely repetitive. Just keep saying it over and over again. Uh, I think this goes to the bridge. Uh, I'm not saying, well, it says ain't, but I'm not, I'm not going to say that. I'm not saying you can walk on water or that you can turn water into wine. But girl, it feels like a miracle that you're mine. It, there's more. There's, I, could, uh, I could give you from the song. I just want to bring it up as saying these, these two concepts. One, equating romantic affection and love to worship between us and God is not healthy. There is some obvious picture between husband and wife and our relationship as a collective, the church's relationship to the groom. There's some good in there, but this idea of earthly relationships becoming to worship is not healthy, it's not good, and let me point you away from this song and to keep your, maybe even use it as a teaching tool. If your kids are into country music, they're into Kane Brown. When I was preparing for this, I found, apparently, he's kind of a big deal in the country music world. Maybe use it as an example. Play the song and say, this isn't healthy. And pull your kids away from any relationship that has the intensity that it starts to feel like worship. Next. I have not been paying attention, really, to the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard thing because I largely don't care what two terrible, seemingly terrible people do to each other. And then we all have to witness it. it you know, it's, it's actually quite the torrid activity that we're all watching divorce proceedings. Or not, I guess these aren't divorce proceedings. This is a defamation suit, but it all comes out of a broken relationship and those are nasty all the time. Consider one that has to do with tens of millions of dollars with two people who both seem to have their own insanities. But here's this is combined with something else I saw that's apparently a trend in the TikTok world as well. And I had a couple of thoughts. It blew me away how much Johnny Depp and Amber Heard record each other and recorded each other. Well, the other one doesn't know. They're just, and I guess they were gathering evidence. Things had gotten so toxic anyway, they knew they would eventually need evidence of the toxicity. And so they were surreptitiously recording each other. How healthy of a relationship is that? Where you stay in it to gather evidence and record the secret conversations and sometimes video. And then a couple other experiences. I, one was I just saw a guy who was at a gym. This is a video I saw on the internet. And he saw a guy doing a kind of a silly exercise and not really doing it right. And he took a video of him and then just like, this is, this is kind of crazy, right? How he's doing this weird exercise. And then there was the final one for me. It seems to be a, seems to be a trend on the ticker talkers where spouses will say something unexpected or break the silence of a of a fight. Like that seems the one that's one I've seen a lot where it's obvious there's been a stone cold silence going on between these two. And it's usually a guy, the the husband, will come break the silence by saying something and then record her reaction. So much wrong here. I just had asked this question. When did this start? 
When did we all start recording each other? That when we didn't want to be. And in relationships in particular, marriages, can we all stop it? Is this, is this a thing? Married couples that listen to me? Do you record each other's conversations? Like when you're just talking to each other? It's weird. And can we stop recording people in public who didn't ask to be recorded for our own, our own enjoy, enjoyment and entertainment? Here's a take that I know is unpopular, but I'm very much against pranks. I hate pranks. Not because I have been pranked and it's a bitterness. It's because I, I hold to, and I hold very hard to a concept, that humans are not for your entertainment. Unless they want to be. They decided to play a sport, be an actor, play music, and they wanted to entertain people. Okay, that person is an entertainment. Their art is an entertainment. But I don't think you sh- I don't think it's a good thing. I'm not going to call it immoral. But there's at least some ethical questions to planning a prank to execute it so that you can get a laugh at someone else's expense. That person doesn't exist to entertain you. Get entertainment a different way. And same thing, when someone's doing something weird in public and you record it, they're not there to get you some likes on the internet. They don't exist for you to be more popular or to get a laugh. Let's treat humans like humans. They're not specimens for us to record. And that was basically it. I just wanted to say out loud, just generally, can we all stop recording each other? It's weird, and I don't think it. I don't think it means. I don't think it means anything good for the culture. I think two or three more things I have written down here. One is a recommendation. The Gospel Coalition, that's tgc.org, tgc.org, is a mostly great organization that puts out a lot of good content. I want to recommend to you a series of debates they are doing. I think it's one per week. We're only in week three right now. They're called TGC, got the Gospel Coalition, TGC Good Faith Debates. If you Google it, go to YouTube, or go to their website, it's easy to find. TGC Good Faith Debates. And they bring together two believers, two people who are firmly in the faith and affirm all the core doctrines, including going as clear as things like penal substitutionary atonement. Like, what's the method of salvation? What was Jesus doing on the cross? Like, we're, we're not talking about just the, the virgin births and things like that. Like, these are real believers. And they have very good-natured debates. I've watched the first two. The first one was about gun control with a British Christian. And this British Christian, definitely coming from a, uh, let's go with a background and a culture where guns are not endemic, they're not normal in the culture, he doesn't quite get it over here, but it's it's almost it's almost healthier to have a debate about a topic outside of its local context. Guns generally just very different in the United States than everywhere else. And so it's good for Christians to be disembodied from their their earthly citizenship to just look at it Christianly. And I think the guy the the pro-gun guy, the pro-gun rights guy, just a pastor out of Nebraska, he did an incredible job of it. Not making it, it's, you know, it's an American right, it's the Second Amendment, but biblically arguing that one of the ways you love your neighbor is being able to defend your neighbor if he's attacked. Arguing that one of the responsibilities of a, a mom and a dad is to have the capability of defending their children. You're a derelict husband if you can't defend your wife, you're a derelict mom and dad. You can't defend, at least at some level, your children. And making that argument biblically, like he, he went to the law. It was really, really good stuff. 
And I think he kind of wiped the floor with this guy. And, of course, I'm biased. But the British guy is largely arguing, well, the Christian's goal should be the most people alive. And if you just eliminate guns, if you'll give up your freedom, that's he's making a biblical argument there. Give up your freedom. What good is it anyway? Why are you valuing your human freedom so much? Give it up so as to save lives. Now, underneath that premise is a real real question. Will we save life by having fewer guns? I would deny that. I would deny that premise. Especially right now, where we have a very high crime rate, one of the great deterrents in the American context, especially in high gun areas, you just never know. There, it's, there is a correlation here. A lot of the highest crime right now is happening where guns are the most illegal. Now, there are still a lot of guns in those places, illegally, because people break the law. But there's an under, the underlying argument for that British dude was very weak. He's saying, if you value life, you'll want fewer guns because more guns lead to more death. And that's not true. There's not a clear correlation, at least. I, had a, I wish I could have been in that debate because he had one... He was arguing, well, there's more gun deaths in the United States than in places that don't have guns, and therefore, there is a correlation between having guns and gun deaths. Well, I can immediately diminish that argument and really dismiss it. Inside the United States, the places where there are the most guns per person have the least gun crime. You know, Vermont, as a state, has the most guns per person. They basically have no gun crime. They have no metropolises, like they have no big cities. They're homogenous in their culture. They are upper middle class mostly, rural people. They got a lot of guns because they're rural. Now, yeah, they're they're very liberal place, but they actually have a lot of guns in Vermont per person. And you have fewer guns per person in big cities, but you have a lot more violent crime. So anyway, the great debate there, and I highly encourage going to watch that one or listening listening to it. And then the next one they did was about wokeness, the hard part of it was getting a definition. What are you, what are you going to do for your definition of wokeness? And once again, it was an American Christian arguing against the use of wokeness in the church and a British person arguing for using it to understand the marginalized. I think, again, it was, I am, I'm biased, but I think the American wiped the floor with this woman, she made some great points about the church historic being somewhat mean, being a, a cantankerous people when it comes to those that were not like the majority culture at the time. But historic meanness is no excuse for theological shallowness. What we need in the church is biblical categories. The biblical categories for, for example, sexual behaviors is not orientations. Those are those are behaviors, and some some of them are sins. Some of them are are to be celebrated. The biblical category for what we call race is ethnicities. That there is one human race, but there are ethnicities, and that matters. There's been a lot of ethnic strife, and only the gospel can bring reconciliation. In any event, while the first debate I think was more even and better, I just I think it's good to see this. It's good to see Christians arguing with one another, respectfully, mostly from the scriptures. I think my side of those debates definitely brought more Bible to the, to the debate. 
and be very respectful. That's the that's the rarity in our media ecosystem is to see people disagree with one another and be kind to each other while they do it. And especially inside the church, we certainly need that. So just two recommendations for you, two things I found, and they're, they're free. You just go out there and watch, watch them on YouTube or on tgc.org and get some good debates. And then I had just one more recommendation for you. I am probably like you. I have very little time. And I, I use my commute time, which is about an hour and a half every day, I'm very much dedicated to what I call redeeming the time, or I've adopted that phrase, redeeming the time. I don't use those 45 minutes for nothing. I want to use it in prayer if you can. It's, it's hard to, to really be in prayer time while driving. But I want to be listening to a sermon or learning something, learning, listening to a podcast where I learn something. And so if you are like me and you are busy, and you're so busy you couldn't read that Samuel Alito opinion on Roe versus Wade, I have a solution for you. The Austin Barker from over at Christian Worldview with Tony and Austin, the morning show, the anchor on WHRT, he read it for you, and he put it out on iTunes. It's on their feed on Christian Worldview with Tony and Austin. I think if you search Christian Worldview with Tony and Hannah, you still see the the feed, either, either name. And I also did a great job of it emphasizing, I think there was some performance value too, emphasizing the parts that Alito would want emphasized. It'll take you an hour and 20. If you listen to it on 1.4 speed or 1.2 speed, you can get through it even faster. But that document is so thorough, so well-reasoned. It's triumphant. And I also, while giving you recommendations at the end of the show, highly recommend you go either read it or, if you can't, let Austin Barker read it to you on the Christian Worldview with Tony and Austin podcast feed. I am always grateful for your time every week. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody. Peace and love.